Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Our text this morning begins in verse 7 and extends to the end of the chapter to verse 16. As we've been working our way through this wisdom book, as wisdom literature, what we've discovered is that the preacher, Hebrew word koholith, but I've been calling him the preacher, uh, the preacher wants to teach us what true wisdom looks like. But in order for us to see true wisdom, we, we can't be looking for the world as we wish it were actually, or the way we wish it was. Um, no, he actually wants to show us the world as it actually is. Um, we saw that last time as we, we had a very challenging section where the preacher introduced us to death and all his friends. But he's going to do the same this morning, um, challenging us on the things that we end up striving after, power, possessions, and whether it's all worth it, uh, whether it's worth it to be alone, or whether it'd be better to live life with true wisdom, life together, where two are better than one. But in order to see this clearly, I think, from this passage in God's word, we need God's help. So let's ask him for it. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come desiring the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we know that we, we can certainly come with unaided reason and ability and, and, and understand certain things from this portion of the Bible. But Lord, we will not hear it as the word of God apart from your working. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and to speak, and you would speak in and through Holy Scripture that, that we would see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and beginning in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I, I wanted to begin this morning with a classic piece of American literature. Now, I, I'm not talking about Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath or, 
or Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. No, I'm talking about the true classic, Yertle the Turtle by Dr. Seuss. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you're not familiar with the story of Yertle the Turtle. Well, it begins uh, on a pond in the island of Salamasan. And, and Yertle is the king, but, but everyone there in the pond seems to be happy. All the turtles have everything that they need. Um, they seem to be living at peace. Uh, Yertle's throne was a, a, a stone in the middle of the pond, but, but he grew unhappy because he couldn't see all that he ruled. And so he has an idea. The way that Seuss puts it is this. So Yertle, the turtle king, lifted his hand and Yertle, the turtle king gave a command. He ordered nine turtles to swim to his stone, and using these turtles, he built a new throne. He made each turtle stand on one another's back, and he piled them all up in a nine-turtle stack. Then Yertle climbed up. He sat down on the pile. What a wonderful view! He could see almost a mile. All mine, Yertle cried. Oh, the things I now rule! I'm king of a cow, and I'm king of a mule, I'm king of a house, and what's more beyond that? I'm king of a blueberry bush and a cat. I'm Yertle the turtle, oh marvelous May, for I'm the ruler of all that I say. Of course, as you might guess, Yertle doesn't stay satisfied with having a throne that's nine turtles high. He wants to see more, and so he orders more turtles and more turtles until he can get as high as he can get, and then he sees the moon. And he's determined to make his throne in the heavens. And so he orders all of his subjects to come to lift him higher. Meanwhile, there's a, there's a turtle at the bottom of the stack. A turtle named Mac. And he's been remonstrating with Yertle all along the way. But then finally something happens that brings Yertle tumbling to the ground. Mac burps. And they all fall down. And the story ends with the turtle's happy once again. And Yertle is not king of all he can see, but king of the mud. It's a great parable, not just great children's literature. It's, great, it's a great parable. Uh, it makes important points, I think, about human striving, about the attempt to be king of all that we can see, of trying to get higher and higher, to build ourselves up to the heavens until it all comes tumbling down. And in many ways, the wisdom that Dr. Seuss has for us is, the, is a similar kind of wisdom to what the preacher has in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Because what the preacher wants us to learn from this text is simply this. When you're king of all you can see, when, when, you, when you pursue a throne that's stacked to the heavens created by your own striving, here's what you learn. It's lonely at the top. It, it's, it's lonely at the top. Now we know this. We've seen it happen to others. And yet, we think that that doesn't apply to us. It always surprises us, doesn't it? When we strive and labor in the workplace, in a nonprofit civic organization, in ministry, it always surprises us as we work our way up the corporate ladder, as we strive to get that position so that we can earn enough money and have enough power to make difference. It always surprises us on how lonely it is, of how isolating it is, and ultimately of how destructive it is. 
I mean, you, you don't have to listen to songs by Jamie Johnson or Bon Jovi. You, you don't have to read the latest issues of the Harvard, Harvard Business Review or, or the Wall Street Journal. Some of you actually know this by experience. You know how lonely it is at the top. You've pursued your way to the top of your career, in the academic world, in a nonprofit organization, in ministry. You've made your way to the top. And what did you sacrifice along the way to get there? You sacrificed your family. You sacrificed friendships. You sacrificed your health. You sacrificed your church. You even neglected and, and sacrificed at times your relationship with the Lord Jesus. And you did so. You made these sacrifices on the altar of toil and work, of striving and success. You've climbed to the top. You've built your throne as high as possible. You know what it is to be the king of all you see. And you know what it is to feel alone. That's what the preacher's talking about here. That's the wisdom that he wants to offer us. Not the world as we wish it was, but the world as it actually is. But he's doing something more. The preacher not only wants us to see the world as it is, but he also wants to see a possibility. Because here he's contrasting the folly of, of seeking power and possessions and being alone. He's contrasting that with the better wisdom of living with contentment together with companions who join us on this life's journey. The contrast between being alone and having all that you could possibly imagine with the true joy, the solid joys and lasting treasures of living life together with friends. And in this contrast, the preacher is pointing us ultimately to what undergirds true wisdom, what undergirds a life that profits, a good life, a life with reward. What undergirds it all is a real relationship with the God who's come to us in Jesus Christ. He's the true friend. And when we know real friendship with Jesus, then suddenly everything else finds, we find that it makes sense. The relationships that God gives us is his good gifts. All this in contrast to what it is to be alone. Now, one thing you have to notice about our passage this morning, that we read together chapter 4, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 16, is like much ancient Near Eastern poetry, and in fact, like some contemporary poetry, there's a pattern here, an A-B-A -A pattern. So verses 7 and 8 form the first A, and they match up to verses 13 to 16. They're talking about similar things. And the B section, the middle section, verses 9 to 12, stand in contrast to the A sections. What, what the A sections are telling you, verses 7 and 8, verses 13 to 16, that they're describing how lonely it is at the top. After all of our human striving and toil, after chasing the wind, what we find is we end up alone. It's an unhappy business, the preacher tells us. And that's particularly the, the case when we chase after possessions. Look at what he says. Your Bibles are still open, right? Look at verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7, the preacher says, again, 
I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now that phrase that the ESV has, one person who has no other, it, it, it actually literally is one person who has no second. He's a first without a second, a first without a companion. That the preacher is picturing here a situation in which someone is, is worked to get ahead, who's piled up all sorts of possessions and money, and yet there's no one else. He has no one. He's alone. But why is he alone? Well, the preacher tells us there's no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. And so he continues to work, and he continues to labor, and he's never asking, for whom am I doing this? And what will, what will I be losing in the exchange? Could it be that in the, in the laboring that I might lose the relationships that God gives me as his gift, the, the people that should be closest to me, all because I was, I was so fixated on achieving and achieving possessions? The 1974 Harry Chapin's song, Cats in the Cradle, you, you've undoubtedly heard it either in the original version or in various remake versions. It has deep wisdom along this line. Uh, Chapin wrote, my child arrived. Just the other day, he came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. He was talking for I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. I'm going to be just like you. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, the little boy blue and the man in the moon. When are you coming home, Dad? Well, I don't know when. But we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I've got a lot to do. He's, I, got to, I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. He said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know I'm going to be like him. Of course, the song ends this way. I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to do that if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle. The kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he had grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. There's deep wisdom there of what, we've, what we lose in our pursuit of possessions, of, of striving to achieve not just significance, but success and all the markers that success brings, places to, to visit, money to have, and we lose the relationships that are closest to us. What does the preacher call that? An unhappy business a chasing after wind. But there's another thing that, 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 that we might pursue that might cause us to be alone, to, to build our castles to the sky, our thrones to the sky, and yet end up all alone. And that's chasing after not just possessions, but power. That's the other A section, verses 13 to 16. 
You see it there. The preacher says, better was an old and wise youth than an old and foolish king who, was no, who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity, a striving after wind. Now these verses, I think, are a little confusing, but, but we can try to figure them out as we try to f- kind of tease apart this, this foolish king, this old foolish king, and this poor wise youth. And with both of them, what you have to see is this, the most powerful person in the world. This, this king who rules over all he sees, he's alone. Whether he's old and foolish or whether he's young and wise, in the end, those who pursue power are alone. So this, this old foolish king, his, his story is remarkable. He's born poor. He ends up in prison, presumably the debtor's prison because of his poverty. And yet in, in God's strange design and providence, he goes from poverty and prison to the throne. And yet, what has he done? He's isolated himself. He doesn't take advice. He he doesn't listen to anybody. He's all by himself. Eventually, he's replaced by this wise youth who grows up in his kingdom. And and this wise youth, he's insanely popular. There's no end to the people who come and ask him for his counsel. No end of those whom he leads. And yet, what happens to him? He dies alone. When, when he dies, he's forgotten. Those who come later will not rejoice in him. So whether the old foolish king or the wise youth, those who have power end up being isolated. They end up being alone. It's no wonder the preacher calls this vanity and striving. To become king of all one can see, to have, to have real power, and to make decisions that affects scores or hundreds or even thousands And to be alone, to be forgotten, that's vanity. That's that's futile. It's a vapor, a fog. It's it's empty. But some of you know what that's like. You've chased possessions. You've had real power. You've run your own companies. You've had scores or hundreds or thousands whom your decisions actually affect. And and you've, you've pursued those positions with, with tremendous power and tremendous money, good salaries attached to that. And what have you discovered? You've been isolated. Isolated from the relationships that matter the most. Within your own workplace, certainly, but, but other relationships too. You've been isolated from your families, from your friends. You've been isolated from your spouse, from your church. Even at times you felt isolated from Jesus. And so the question I want to ask you this morning is, how's that worked for you? How's that worked for you? How's it worked to feel so alone? At the top, you've achieved what you set out to achieve. Was it worth it? The possessions worth it? The beach house, the lake house the boats, the cars, was it worth it? The power worth it to be able to make those decisions? 
Have you, have you sold yourself the lie that, that you're really doing it for everyone else, making more money, doing more work? It was really for my family. It was really for, for my church so I could tithe more. That's not how it works, is it? At least it's not how it works for most of us. We make more money because we spend more money. And we spend more money because we make more money. But in the end, it, it was really for us, wasn't it? Really for yourself. You see, the preacher wants us to see life as it actually is. And this is a clear-eyed view to life as it actually is. But he doesn't want to stop there. He wants to contrast life as it actually is with a new possibility. That, that you might go through life not alone, but you might live life together. And in living life together with those whom God gives you by way of relationship as his good gifts, you might have a life that truly profits, a life of true reward. That's what this middle section is about, starting in verse 9. Two are better than one, the preacher says, because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and is not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's striking that, that with, in this section, the first section about possessions, there the, the person had no second. In the section on power, um, the king did have a second, though not of his own choosing. The wise youth succeeds him. But here, the preacher actually commends those who, who know two are better than one. He commends those who have seconds and thirds and fourths, a, a large group of friends who will, who will hold them up, a, a large number of companions who will sustain them. He wants us to see this because a life lived together with others in cooperation and relationship, that's a life worth living. It's a life of reward. It's a life of true profit. And the way the preacher gets at that is through a series of comparisons. In fact, there are three comparisons that the preacher makes to help us see how, how much better life is when life is lived together. The first focuses on a life that, that privileges relationship. It's, it's sustained when, when we fall. A life that privileges relationship is one that sustains us when we fall. Uh, the preacher says in verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But, but for the person who's isolated themselves through pursuit of significance and success, through pursuit of possessions and power, what happens when they fall? Who's going to pick them up? The implied answer is no one. No one's there because those relationships have been sacrificed on the way to success. A second comparison, a life that lives together with others is sustained in the cold days. The preacher says if, if two lie together, they keep warm. There are, yeah, there are cold and dark nights that come into everyone's life. Cold and dark nights that come into every single person's life. Whether it's difficulty with our children or difficulty with other relationships, friendships, difficulty with our spouse. Sometimes it's health, our health, our parents' health, our children's health. Certainly job loss, job change, being laid off, 
tremendous illnesses like cancer, death of a loved one. All of these are, are cold, dark nights. What happens if you have pursued power and possessions and those dark nights of the soul come? What happens to you? You're alone. You're alone. But the person who's pursued the good gifts that God's given in relationship, as the person who has companions along the way, what happens then when the cold nights come? You're not alone. You're not left out in the cold. There are others to come around you and to surround you to, to help carry you through. The third and last comparison, a life that's given to others is sustained when enemies come. And particularly when, when there's more than one enemy that comes, two will withstand them. If it's two against one and you're all alone, who wins? The enemies do. But a life invested in relationship, what, when the enemies come, what happens? Oh, a threefold cord is not easily broken. It might bend, but it won't break. When the enemies come, we are sustained. Clearly, the preacher is trying to show us what what the better way is, the way of true wisdom, a way in which we live life together with others, receiving the good gifts that God gives us in relationship so that we might be sustained when the difficult days come. But, but though the text doesn't really talk about them, who are these companions? Who, what are these relationships that God gives us? Or, or to put, put it differently, whom should we not forsake for power and possessions? Whom should we not forsake in our pursuit to become king of all we can see? Well, certainly you shouldn't forsake your spouse, right? And yet how often does that happen? It may have happened to some of you, but you certainly know someone to whom it's happened. We're in pursuing success and significance, power and possession in their careers and in their nonprofit sector, in the academic world and ministry, I can certainly talk about that and examples that I know of. In that pursuit, what happens? The marriage starts to drift apart. And suddenly, rather than being lovers who have been tying together by the most intimate bounds and vows, what happens to the couple? Well, it's more of a business relationship, a scheduling arrangement. She lives upstairs, he lives downstairs. They pass in the kitchen. They, they might arrange things for the kids. But the one to, that God had given, that, that God had put together, this couple, they've been put asunder, not by another woman or another man, but by the pursuit for success. And what the preacher is saying is, don't forsake your spouse. Those of you whom God has given that good gift, as you go through life's journey, it's far better to have an intact marriage relationship where you are what God intended you to be than to have more money or to have the job you always wanted. Far better, or to put it differently, it's far worse to have a loveless marriage. Even though you might've gotten the job you wanted, even though you might've had the career path you wanted to have a loveless marriage, or even worse, to end up in divorce, that's far worse. The preacher saying this, these companions that God gives us, and particularly our spouses, those are, that's a good gift, live life together, live life together. Our children, like in the Harry Chapin song, on the pathway to success, don't forsake your children. And yet, how often that's the case. There's a reason why that, that song, the Harry Chapin song, Cats in the Cradle, hits home. 
Because we know the temptation we've had ourselves. We know we've seen it in others. Perhaps we've experienced ourselves as our parents pursued their career paths. And the loss of relationship. Don't forsake your children on the pathway to success. Our church. Whom should you not forsake? Our church, but not just our church as an institution, but these relationships that bind us all together, the ties that bind us together as a church centered on word, sacrament, and prayer. Don't forsake your church. Listen, that's been happening across our country. Around 2010, the average time people would be at church was sometimes about twice a month. Good church members at church twice a month. Now, Post-COVID 2022, the stats around once in five weeks because we have all this money and all these possessions and all the opportunity to do all these things. And meanwhile, in pursuing what we think is success, we're forsaking our church. We're forsaking our church. But how's it possible? How's it possible to be faithful in these relationships? How's it possible to be faithful to our spouse, our children, our church, these friendships that bind us together? I mean, everything else pulls us in the opposite direction. Our success and significance, our, our pursuit of power and possessions, our desire for influence, insider influence, our outsized egos. What, what do we do? How, what makes the difference? Friends, it's only possible. It's only possible to, to live life together in faithfulness. When, when our lives are centered on the one real true friendship, and that is friendship with Jesus Christ. He's, he's the friend for sinners, but he's far, far more. Because listen, Jesus doesn't use you in order to build his throne. He's not like you're the turtle, calling you to prop him up to build his throne to the heavens. His throne is already in the heavens. He's already the Lord of all he sees. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He had all glory from eternity past. God the Son basked in the glory of God the Father and God the Spirit in eternal delight and contentment. He doesn't need you for that. And yet, this one who had all glory left his Father's side. He set glory aside as something not to be grasped or to be used for his own advantage. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And he died, not for his sin, but for your sin, and especially your sin of striving. Your sin of abandonment. Your sins of waywardness, where you've been so prone to, prone to wander, chasing after the baubles and benefits that this world offers. He died for that. He suffered and bore your sin, your sorrow, your suffering, and he did it for these reasons, to sustain you when you fall, to, to, to sustain you, because we all will experience falls in this life. We will all sin and fail. We will know guilt and shame, but Jesus picks us up and sustains us. How can he do that? Because he has nail-pierced hands. And he died and rose again to rescue you from the great enemy when he comes. Because we will all face the great enemy. His name is death. We will all know the judgment day to come. And on that day, we need a rescuer. And Jesus came from heaven's throne to earth so that he, bearing five bleeding wounds that he received on Calvary, might plead them for you. And above all, on that cold day, we need a companion who might show the great mercy of God. A companion who might warm us and lead us all the way home 
We need the one who is the fount of every blessing. We need Jesus. Jesus is the real friend, the true friend that you most desperately need. With him, though all others may forsake you, with him you'll find two is better than one. So where are you with Jesus? Where are you? I mean, you've been pursuing these various pathways in your life. Striving for significance, success, possession, power, all the rest. And very well may be you've wandered away from Jesus. He's not left you. He's still in the same place. In fact, he's right here, right now, right beside you. And you're here and, and, and God's telling you to be honest. Don't, don't daydream about the world you think it, you wish it was. Look at it clearly. Look at your life clearly. Could it be that you've wandered off the path pursuing power, possessions, significance, success? He's right here right beside you, right there. All you need to do is to say, Jesus, I've wandered off. I've made, a, I've made a muck of all this. I've wandered off. Jesus, can I come back? And he'll say, sure. I'm right here. Come back. Come to the fount of every blessing. Come back. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my friends. There's not a single person here who hasn't, in one way or the other, wandered along this very pathway. This pathway of possessions and power and significance and success. And we've been tempted to to try to make that our focus in life. But Lord, you've shown us clearly today that's just simply striving after the wind. Lord, give us the things that are needful. Give us yourself. Help us to see the good gifts that you've given us in our spouse, in our family, our friends, our church. Help us to see clearly um, that these are, are gifts that are meant to lead us to the giver. And Lord, fill us full. Fill us full of yourself. Fill us full of the joy that you promised to give to your friends. Lord, we're sinners. Be a friend to sinners this morning. Above all, Lord, we ask that you would gain glory for yourself. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.